Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, the unofficial fifth major of the tennis calendar, now in the books, Indian Wells has come and gone, the two-week event, and Iga Sviantek hoisted her second WTA 1000 of the season. Taylor Fritz claiming his first ever Masters 1000 title. And uh, we're also lucky to be joined uh, this week by guest Blair Henley, one of our favorites on the show. But uh, certainly, I mean, certainly on the men's side, a complete shock winner, I think it's safe to say. And as for the women's side, Iga Sviantek just uh, keeps on rolling. Yeah, we're having some fun with the men's results in Indian Wells for sure, keeping everybody um, on on their toes. And uh, of course, no Novak Djokovic. And I don't know, it's not even worth saying no Roger Federer anymore because uh, it's mm. been so long. But people are getting the chance finally. And we're, we're seeing that last year was Cam Norrie and now Taylor Fritz. And uh, anyone who said they saw that coming, I'm, I'm going to call you out on that one. Although there's certainly been strides uh, from the American in, in the past couple of years. So Great to see for American tennis. Great for Indian Wells to get a, a, an American champion. And great for us to get Blair Henley back here, another American that we're really fond of and uh, one of our favorite guests uh, for sure. To have her back, and you had a <clears throat> excuse me, great chat with her this week. And you can just tell the enthusiasm she has for the sport and, and how much fun she had in, uh, in California this past week. Yeah, and uh, she, she has some of the most uh, kind of upbeat, fun content, great digital content anytime she's there covering tournaments that, uh, I, you know, I, I want to see her covering as many tournaments as possible through the year. Uh, if you go to her Twitter page right now, I think she led off the tournament with a TikTok um, called like enjoying these players preparing for and arriving in Indian Wells and she had different costumes for all the players she was sharpening a, a knife for Anz Jabur getting ready for her slice it was great um, I love content like that I, I feel like our tennis space needs more and more of that and it's growing and she's uh, one of the best at it she put so much work into it and I mean it seems effortless but we know how much she hustles behind the scenes and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's current it's cutting. It's it's super funny to watch as well. And, and that's what's going to bring people to the table. That's what's going to bring in new fans to tennis is having people like her there. And look, being an MC on a court is no easy feat. I've seen people do it before with just like zero personality or people who have personality sort of off mic. But when it translates to holding that microphone and being in front of a crowd, it may not come as, as naturally. Mm -hmm. And for Blair Henley, it's uh, it just transitions so smoothly from one to the other, and she makes people feel so comfortable. And we've seen this in press conferences before, how much a, a well-intentioned question and approach can get the best out of a player. And the same is true on court in their post-match interviews. And so I think players feel um, super at ease when they see that Blair's the one there that they're going to talk to after the match. And as she mentioned in your interview, she got some good stuff from, you know, even some of the younger players and even mm -hmm. some of the players whose language isn't, first language isn't English, um, she's getting some great stuff from them. And that that's all on her, I think. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, great, great stories that she had over the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, this exclusive content that we were hearing from her uh, as she worked uh, Stadium 3 at Indian Wells through the week and also worked a, a pre-event called Tiebreak 10s has a, a couple fun Layla Fernandez stories. So uh, we'll get right to it. Here's my interview with host Blair Henley. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and happy to be joined this week by a friend of the podcast, a writer, host, and was just working the grounds at Indian Wells, conducting interviews all across uh, various matches. Blair Henley, uh, welcome back to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Good to see your smiling face. Yeah, good to see your smiling face as well. Um, you know, this is such an exciting event for me because you look at the tennis calendar, it's so long. And I, I always tell myself, well, there's nine Masters 1000 events. Um, and yet we always talk about Indian Wells being so special. What, what do you think it is specifically about um, the desert, just all the players kind of ascending on this tournament that leads us to really call it like the unofficial fifth major of the year? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've heard people say, yes, it's tennis paradise in terms of walking around and it's so beautiful. The conditions on court for the players, I don't know that it's tennis paradise for right. everyone. I think it kind of depends on the player. Uh, it's some, some are very 
gung-ho on the Indian Wells condition, some very much not. Uh, but I think for the fans, it's it's just the feeling that you get walking around the grounds. Again, the scenery is gorgeous. There's tennis going on everywhere. It's a really easy site to move around in, which some sites, especially some big tournaments, that's not necessarily the case. Um, there, everything is just very spread out, so it's easy to navigate. Um, so that's, I, I think, on the fan side. On the player side, I feel like there's that feeling of coming back from Australia or if you've been playing some of the South American clay tournaments, whatever it is, or even playing indoors in Dallas, it's the feeling that we're heading into the warmer months of the year here in the US and it's spring and it's the sunshine double and it's the very beginning of that. So I think that there is this feeling of anticipation, whether or not it's for Indian Wells, just sort of for the whole stretch of spring and summer that we love so much on the professional tennis calendar. Yeah. And it feels like, you know, we've, we've lacked obviously the normalcy of a tennis calendar for a couple seasons, especially 2020, because we had the six months off, but even 2021, it, it didn't feel fully normal and Indian Wells landing in the fall was, was just strange and bizarre. And I, I mean, you know, I wasn't there, but just following along on television and seeing some of the shots on Twitter, it, it felt like also a return to normalcy in a sense of North American tennis and just the vibe and excitement and, and atmosphere to feel that way for you just just being there yes I was shocked uh, I mean I for those who don't know I live in Texas so things have been quote-unquote uh, normal I mm -hmm. guess or, or people have acted like things were normal sure. for quite a while <laughs> yeah um I was expecting given that some of the the mandates and things had just lifted in California I was expecting it to be less normal than it was um right. But let me tell you, it was people were all in on, yes, we've got tennis back. Uh, a little bit of that normal life feeling is back and people were all in. Um, it was far more normal than I thought it was going to be. I, <laughs> I wasn't there in October, um, but I am on Stadium 3 in Indian Wells, which is, I call it the party court. If, if people come to my court, I give sort of the little spiel in the morning and say, you have arrived at the best court here at the Indian Wells Tennis Garden, whether you know it or not, nice. it's the party court. And it is, it's very much sort of the atmosphere. You have some of the more bleacher seats. Uh, it's, it's just, there's just a looser feeling on stadium three. That also goes with how the players get in and out of the court. And I'm going somewhere with the story. So bear with me, mm -hmm. but <laughs> my sweet uh, producer on stadium three was telling me we were we were having some issues because the players come in and out in the same little mini thoroughfare that the security guards try to make in and out of the court and I was struggling because I have to notify my producer when I see the players so she can play the intro video so that the players don't have to wait a long time when they when they come to the edge um, of the court because you know they're just standing there they're they're not in a tunnel like they would be on Stadium Two or Stadium right. One and. We had Carlos Alcaraz on my court. Uh, we had Andre Rublev and they will sign. They sign a ton of autographs. So you have this, this blockage because the player who just finished is signing autographs. Then you have the players coming in. I'm five foot four. I can't really see the players coming in. But my sweet producer said to me, she's like, just, you know, like in the fall, they just sort of trained the ushers the ushers who are mostly very lovable, wonderful retirees uh, from the Coachella Valley, just, you know, train them to block things off. And yeah. I, in the nicest way that I could to my producer, just said, I think there are more people here <laughs> than there were in October. I don't yeah. think, you know, training my, my ushers is going to help us at the entry to Stadium 3. So I tell you that very long story to say, there were so many people um, yeah. and there were so many autographs. Like even that was something that hadn't like when the players would sign autographs, it was sort of taboo almost like we couldn't tell them not to sign autographs. Yeah. It was sort of up to them. But as you know, if I was working on social media, we didn't really take a ton of pictures of that because it wasn't really something that was supposed to be happening per the protocols. So this was at least for me, the first tournament where that was also normal, the players were all among the people and mm. autographs were being signed, <clears throat> excuse me, selfies were being taken. So <laughs> it 
it was very normal that again a very long story to say very very normal no that's uh that's great because yeah i, I was still even getting that vibe that in terms of fan interaction um even for such a, a major event it seems like at an all-time high um at, at indian wells and it feels like the player access like you're so close when you're there at practice and uh just the ability to navigate around and, and see everybody is is so cool um we'll get to the tennis of course and uh just starting on the men's side, obviously you guys are going to the tournament thinking about storylines for, for BNP Paribas Open. And for me, obviously the lead storyline is, is somebody going to stop Nadal in his undefeated season. I have to tell you, Taylor Fritz wasn't exactly on my radar as the guy to do it. Was he on your radar as someone who could, you know, at least make a run here? Obviously he, he's played well at Indian Wells in the past, or is this like completely out of nowhere for you? I, I mean, I'm, I wish I could say, oh, yes, Taylor Fritz on my short list to, yeah. to take out Rafa at Indian Wells. Uh, I definitely think we've seen slow and steady improvements in Taylor's game. I think we saw mm. it in Australia. But then I saw him play in at the Dallas Open. Um, he lost to Marcos Giron in a tiebreak in the third set. Granted, Marcos Giron played a an unbelievable third set tiebreak, but there were big portions of that match where I was thinking – this, he doesn't look great. Um, and so there was, and I believe he had maybe one other early round loss, uh, maybe in Acapulco, um, one of those. So, so yeah, you saw this great thing in Australia, all sides pointing to, to bigger and better things for Taylor. And then he had a couple of rough weeks. And I think it just goes to show that that's tennis. And mm -hmm. we can't have, you know, it's so easy to be like, well, we saw good things. And then the pressure got to him and then he couldn't handle it. And he had two early exits and now he's going to be terrible for the Sunshine Double. I think it's easy as fans, right, to, to sort of take those big swings with the pendulum. Mm -hmm. um, I think the players take it much there, – there's less weight placed on those losses than maybe we as fans might place on them for most of the players anyway. Um, I think short memory is key, and he certainly came in and he was comfortable. He's made great strides. I was working with Paul Anacone is the more – maybe maybe bigger name coach but Michael Russell has done unbelievable things uh Mike is a workhorse I mean and he's so he's kind of a quiet guy kind of the the steady ship in in the rolling seas if you will so I think that that has been huge for Taylor and I love that they've had success together uh but like I said yeah no I, I didn't exactly see that coming but it wasn't just Taylor I mean so many American guys mm -hmm. played unbelievably well in Indian Wells. Yeah, yeah, it was a spectacular showing, obviously, for, for the Americans. And then, you know, we start raising that question. This was the first American champion we'd had in 21 years since Andre Agassi. What is the future of American tennis? Does, does a big win like this change things? And, um, you know, for me, I'm looking at the names and obviously the positive sign is guys like Taylor Fritz, Jensen Brooksby, Opelka are still so young. Do you think this this new generation is kind of poised to do a, a lot of damage maybe over the next 10 years. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes I sort of reject the cliche of, well, yeah, did you, you saw your peer so-and-so doing well, does that inspire sure. you to think that you can, but in some ways because they all are, this is all happening for them at the same time or at similar times. I, I do actually, in this case, think that's helpful when you see Brooksby going out there and tuning Karen Hachinov and Stefano Tsitsipas. I mean, why couldn't American men be in the conversation every week at the biggest events? Um, and you see Taylor getting it done with apparently some major ankle injury. <laughs> I mean, why not? Uh, so I do think there is maybe a sense of why not me. Um, I think Riley Opelka, when he lost to Rafa was really annoyed at himself. I, and I think that that's also a good sign. It's not a feeling of, well, I had a decent tournament. I avenged my loss to Denis Shapovalov at the Australian Open, and I ended up losing to Rafa. Like, I think Riley was legitimately irritated with himself. And again, I feel like those are the signs you want to see in terms of the American guys pushing themselves and being potentially the last one or last two standing at the end of these big weeks. Yeah. And you mentioned like the, the cliche that we can sort of make fun of as well, the other American one. So now it's my turn, but uh, it, it is interesting. Like 
you know, Felix and Dennis being friends for so long. And I feel like there is a sense of them feeding off one another here in Canada. And you, you dig up old photos of scrawny looking Riley Opelka next to skinny Taylor Fritz and Tommy Paul. And you remember like these guys in a sense did grow up together. So they, they do have that bond and, and maybe that is helpful. For sure. And I think very few of us can truly understand what it's like to be raised as a top athlete, in particular a top athlete in the United States and sort of what comes along with that. Maybe Riley slightly less so, but I that was one of my first years at the US Open was I was the MC for the Tommy Paul Taylor Fritz US Open Junior Final that that Taylor ended up winning. And so these guys and they were they were heralded as the next big American thing even then. And that was what, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there is a mental weight that comes with growing up the way that they did. And I think they are sort of the only ones who get that. And so I do think it's big to have each other. And I do think they're all close friends. I watched Taylor Fritz and Tommy Paul play doubles together at Indian Wells. They were on stadium three. Uh, they certainly looked like they were having a lot of fun. So I think that's hugely important in this world of eyeballs and pressure and all that stuff that can really derail people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, tennis paradise, maybe for fans, but conditions being so different on these courts and definitely lending to some players games like John Isner talked about just loving the surface here. Um, and maybe not working for some others. I mean, I, I got the sense just from watching Felix actually lose in his opening match that he never really properly adapted, uh, to what it was like. Uh, the match I'm thinking of is semifinals Alcaraz and Nadal. And the fact that they played an Epic match with the amount of wind was, was just stunning, but, have you have you ever seen a match with that much wind? I like I was personally thinking of trying to recall playing in in wind like that, and I was joking with my friend like I think if we were in the middle of that, we would just probably pack up and go home. Like it was ridiculous. Um, it's you know that I'm trying to pull from my men- my mental memory bank here. I don't know that I am recalling a specific match, but there were a couple of really bad days at Indian Wells in terms of the wind. I feel like maybe I am more connected to said windy days because my Stadium 3 production booth didn't actually have a roof. It was a tent, like a, it was an awning, (laughs) if you will, (laughs) uh, with the front open. And so there was one point, I mean, the booth was jiggling, there was dirt coming in. I I went down to the court and somebody's like, what's on your face? It's like, it's dirt, it's dirt. Own in the tent, um, the roof of my production booth. So there were some really tough days there in terms of the wind. And really, the wind is just a great equalizer. It, mm-hmm. The people who have the huge weapons, they're not as huge in the wind. Um, yep. And they're probably not as consistent in the wind. And so, to be honest, I think Carlos and Rafa played the most quality tennis with those two with their game styles put on the best show that you could have put on given those conditions. Um, and Carlos, quick side note, I did mention was on Stadium 3, not once but twice, total star. It was mm-hmm. my first interaction with him. Uh, I had never interviewed him before. But not only the interaction in terms of the interview, just the way he walked on the court like he had been there before, there was the connection, eye contact with fans instead of eyes on the ground, which is something we see a lot. Uh, I just was impressed from the very beginning to the very end. And I'm trying to remember who else I told this story to, but he, before the interview, asked me to give him the questions in mm-hmm. advance. Like, what are, what are we going to talk about? Yeah, and yeah. So I ran through them. He got on the mic and he was an absolute hero. He did an unbelievable job, um, gave great answers, had a sense of humor both times. And so I feel like Carlos and I now, if we ever have to do this again, I mean, granted, he's certainly working on his English, which I think shows a an awareness of how important that is. And if we're being honest, the fact that it can equal actual dollars <laughs> for mm-hmm. him. So the yep. fact that he is fired up to connect with fans in that way and to sort of accept the superstardom that is likely coming his way if he can stay healthy, those were all amazing signs um and i just 
absolutely loved the way that he carried himself. He was incredibly polite. When he came back to Stadium 3, he, he said, hello, good to see you again. Nice. Um, I mean, things that are not normal um, yeah. in my job. So a huge, amazing, you know, blasting neon signs that Carlos, if he can stay healthy, is is a, a superstar already, really. Yeah, the, the word that stood out to me in Rafa's description of him was unstoppable. Uh, and this is an 18-year-old kid. And I was wondering and, and going to ask you, like, what is his... First of all, the speed, what is it like maybe witnessing that speed, you know, on, on the court physically and, and the speed of his ball? It's, it's overwhelming. You talk about, I'm looking at the, the court three matches that he played. I mean, beats Roberto Bautista, good 6-2, 6 love. Like that, that's pretty, pretty hard to do. What was it like just, just watching the tennis? To be fair, I, I'm going to talk about that RBA match. And to be fair, sure. RBA has never done well at Indian Wells. He hits a, a little right. bit of a flatter ball that tends to do not as well on the, as Mark Petchy said, uh, I did an event with uh, Mark at the beginning of the tournament. And I said, have you heard about how the courts are playing? Um, just doing a little bit of, of research. And mm -hmm. he said, total sludge. <laughs> So and sludge. so listen, that, that is, yes. And so that is not going to suit, uh, you know, a guy who, who hits a little bit flatter, that ball's yeah. going to sit up. Um, so perhaps not his favorite tournament to begin with, mm -hmm. but he gets balls back. And so two and oh, um, I, yeah, that was the scoreline, right? Yeah. Is it two and oh? Yeah. I, I think what impressed me most in terms of his movement was his balance so even when he was pulled way out of position, he still looked completely balanced, yeah. uh, which again, I, I don't know if that, if you guys can imagine watching a tennis player who never looks clumsy at any point, no matter how out of position he or she is, that that's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, and just strong and stable. It just normally, especially with like 18 year old guys there's sort of a feeling of baby giraffe sometimes sure. <laughs> and he just seemed so in control of his limbs and where he was at all times and it, he just seemed advanced for his years in terms of his physical development uh, I mean goodness he's he's going to be competing at the highest level I mean he is competing at the highest level right now so I wouldn't be surprised to see him in contention for slams this year yeah. Um, yeah. The, the win for me that really like sold him as like, this kid is unbelievable was, was beating Nori six, four, six, three in a match that I watched. And I was like, Nori is playing well. <laughs> he's, he's hitting great shots and they just keep coming back. It was, it was unbelievable to see. So um, Cam's big lungs. Cam's yes, big lungs. Couldn't the big lungs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. So certainly uh, curious to see what he can do on, on the clay season as well. Um, we'll head over to the women's side and this, this feels like an obvious point at this point, um, given what she's done, but outside of Ash Barty, it's hard to pick a, a stronger player on the WTA for 2022 than, than Iga Sviantek. Just this run has, has been spectacular. Uh, what, what have you made of just her achievements the, the first few months of the tennis season? I think I'm as impressed as everyone else. I think the key has been the consistency since she won Roland Garros, there has just been a level of consistency and she hasn't done it. It hasn't been loud. She hasn't, she, she doesn't make a lot of figurative noise as she goes about these tournaments, but she has been wildly consistent and she has every tool. And I think her, her biggest strength is perhaps that she has struggled mentally early mm -hmm. and has addressed it. I feel like sometimes after you have that big breakthrough win, then you're trying to be like, there's a lot for me to handle here and I am not handling it well. You maybe don't have players, don't have somebody helping them or guiding them uh, in the best possible way in that department. I think one of the biggest things that she has going for her is that she addressed the mental side of her game early. And she has a, a mental coach that travels with her. And I think that is why she has been able to use her talent to the very best of her ability so effectively for the past couple of years. 
Yeah, that, that's really well said. Um, as as for the game itself, I mean, qualities that, that stand out, uh, the, the forehand is fantastic. Her, her court coverage is immense. And But I think, um, you know, further to that mental point, what maybe impresses me about her the most is being 20 years old and being such a problem solver. You look at the way she navigated this tournament, first, second, and third round, she dropped the first set. And particularly that, that third round against Angelique Kerber, who, who plays great at Indian Wells, um, just finding a way um, to, to search for, you know, solutions to, to what happened in the first and and flipping a match around. I'm just uh, astounded by her ability to do that at such a young age. I loved that quote. I'm sure probably you saw it. Probably many people listening saw it where she was saying that she heard that Ash Barty, when she is in a position where she's down and out and it looks like maybe you're not, she's not going to come up with a W that day. Ash likes to think of it as a challenge. Like, okay, well, this is, this probably isn't going to end well. So let's try to, let's just see what happens. Let's try to figure out some solutions Mm -hmm. and, and treats it as a challenge in those moments, a challenge in a positive way, not a challenge in like, Oh, I'm not playing my best. This isn't fun. Um, Who wants to have to dig out of a hole against name the the top player in the world. Uh, But she, to take some joy in those situations, even when she's down, I think that is, I like, I want to do that in my life. (laughs) I would love to be in a position being like, this was a terrible day. This did not go well. All these logistics have gone wrong. Let's see what I have in my toolbox to fix this. I I just think it is a a brilliant way for Ash to look at things and a brilliant way for Ega to look at things, to turn those tough situations into a positive and into like a little escape room, so to speak on the tennis court. I'm going to have to steal that uh, description escape room and maybe, maybe try and channel that the next time I'm uh, on court for a tennis match and losing. I, I love that. Um, I wanted to ask just about uh, Layla Annie Fernandez. Um, you know, she played great and won, uh, backed up her title in Monterey defending champion and, and wins it again before coming to Indian Wells and the vibe and, a sense I got just from watching her run here, making the round of 16, was that she seems very adored by the crowd. I, I don't know if you got that sense as well, but did, did you feel just from being on the grounds or maybe speaking with people that she's already like a bit of a, a fan favorite and star? Yes. And I also got the feeling that she loves it. So it's yeah. mutual. I think she likes being that person that people love to cheer for and she leans into it. And I think the fans love it right back. Uh, A quick Layla anecdote. I did tiebreak tens at the beginning of the tournament and Layla played in that, which was a lot of fun. And she's playing with Naomi and Simona and Paul Mm -hmm. Medusa and Arena Sabalenka and Anz Jabur people who are much older than she is people who have, well, maybe not much older, but older who have done this, for many more years who have had time to sort of settle into being a star. And she was right there with them. I mean, when she walked out on the court and she's doing the, the, you know, the pageant wave to the crowd and they love her and she loves them. Uh, But it was interesting before we actually started the live show of tiebreak tens, it was a two hour live show, which was, you know, sweat inducing on, (laughs) on the host said we made it through. And I think it turned out really well, but before that, we did on court a little promotion for Slinger Bag. And so if for those who don't know, it's like a bag, but it's actually a ball machine. So they put the Slinger Bag on the other side of the net. They put a Slinger Bag open. So it is actually also a bag. And so they mm-hmm. opened the top of it and the players had to come out, all eight of them, and try to hit the target as the Slinger Bag was feeding balls to them so imagine I felt like I was back at an academy in South Florida it was they were all lined up they all got to hit probably I don't know eight to ten forehands and then we switched and they all got to hit eight to ten backhands and so I'm standing just courtside when it was Layla's turn she was closer to the end I think only a couple of players had actually made it into the bag hit the target Mm -hmm. Uh, and Layla is talking to herself like come on come on I feel it. This next one. Give me one more. I got it. You know, (laughs) and I'm like, holy cow, this is like a glimpse into what I am sure she was like growing up. Yeah. She wants it so bad. I I can imagine her being, you know, 
who's already been on the court for hours and she wants to hit that last target. And that is what I felt like I was looking at in this very much an exhibition uh, <laughs> scenario where yeah. no one cares if she makes it in or not. But she's <laughs> talking to herself, like not talking herself. And no shock here, she ends up getting getting the ball into the bag. She hit the target. But she was like telling herself, I'm so close. I know I'm so close. I'm going to get this next one. Just give me one more. Um, I don't know. To me, that was like such a glimpse into Layla's soul right there is the girl is relentless. It was fun. It was a great moment. Oh, that's that's such a fantastic story. It makes me think of a an old video of her, I think maybe eight or nine years old, uh, doing just a, a drill on the court and just racing back and forth, hitting cross courts again and again. And you could see just this steely determination in this player, even at that age, which I, I think was, you know, long instilled uh, from her father years ago. And of course, still part of part of her coaching team. That's that's great. Um, I wanted to finish with a few fun uh, rapid fire questions just about the tournament and maybe the experience of uh, talking to some of these players. Just um, I love getting stories for, from you, but maybe okay. this can be a little more rapid fire. Um, okay. I'll start with this first question. Who was the funniest player you interviewed this past two weeks? The I have to say, okay, I, I hate to make this all about tiebreak tens, but I'm just going to rope all the interviews I did into sure. one answer here. Yeah, yeah. And Paula Badosa hmm. talking about wanting her boyfriend to put a ring on it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, court. I saw that. And the, the backstory there is Arena had talked about the fact that she was, she used the word single. Uh, she then corrected me later. She is not single. She's just not married yet. Okay. okay. <laughs> had to clarify. We talked about Simona being a newlywed. So it was toward the end of the event. And I said to, to Paula, I was like, okay, hey, before you leave us, we've talked about this. We've talked about this. Anything you want to get off your chest. And she said, well, you know, in the next few years, I hope we're going to get there to, you know, maybe getting engaged. And then she holds up her ring finger, like, yeah. does the, you know, there's nothing there yet. Yeah. Um, and I, after it was over, it was a hilarious moment. The crowd laughed, but after it was over, I went up to her and I was like, Paula, you know, that I wasn't, I, I wasn't, you didn't have to talk about your personal life. If you didn't want to, you could have talked about it. She's <laughs> like, oh yeah, I know it wasn't a big deal. Look, he's already texted me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it was live, it was a live show. Um, so he had already yeah. texted, um, you know, something along the lines of I'm feeling pressure. Anyway, it, she was hysterical. Um, also such a star. So I think that was one of the highlights for me. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I guess what, uh, what player did you come across? You would say is most, most down to earth down to earth. I'm running through. That's always the problem is once I get done, I think there are about 50 interviews and I'm thinking, who did I, who did I talk to? Yeah. Um, but I, I like to sort of go off the beaten path. And one of my favorite interviews while I was there was talking to Asia Muhammad and Anna Shibahara who have done amazingly well together. They made it to the final, I believe. And Asia has done well on the singles court as of late but she had just finished playing Coco Goff and Katie McNally. They had just beat them. And I asked Asia something about the match and she took it her own way and said, can I just say like, isn't it the greatest thing that that's the future of American tennis? Mm. And there was sort of like a smattering of applause. I don't think the crowd knew that they were gonna have to be into it quite that soon in the interview. And she said, I mean, I don't know if you guys are excited, but I'm excited that that's the future of American tennis. It was just a really nice, unselfish moment. Athletes are, are trained to be selfish and it was a really unselfish moment. And that was really neat. Yeah, that, that's great. And uh, of course they are like media trained. So I, I guess I would follow up. W was there any player you, you spoke to who just really, really surprised you? Carlos. Yeah. yeah. And I've already given you the reasons why I, I have no idea what to expect. And sometimes the Spaniards, the, the language barrier, especially when they're young is, is really a challenge. And I try, I do my best to help them like going through the questions in advance. Um, mm -hmm. But some players are less willing to give it a go and sort of let it fly on the mic. And he did. And it was just such a delight. Love it. Um, maybe you answered this already with the Paula 
uh, answer because it feels very memorable, but I was also going to ask what the, the best or most memorable answer you got to a question. So if you have one more, that would be great. Oh, for sure. Cam Nori. Um, I, I don't know if, if everyone remembers this article that came out after he won Indian Wells last year, where it was, it was a physio or a coach who said the headline that ended up being on the article was Cam Nori's heart rate would kill most humans. <laughs> and it was such a, an outrageous sensationalized headline but that was mm -hmm. actually his quote they he was wearing one of those heart rate monitors and they were amazed by the fact that he was able to sustain ridiculously high heart rates for a ridiculously long period of time on court which makes total sense right if you've seen him play tennis yeah. but i he was on stadium three um which we can debate amongst ourselves ourselves whether or not he should have been on stadium three but he was on stadium three um I'm struggling. Oh, he, it was in his rematch of last year's final. He had just beaten Nikolaus Basilashvili. Right. And it was the last question in the interview. And I said, I just have to get to the bottom of this headline. Is, are your, you know, can you sustain that heart rate? Is it a, a talent? Is it a gift? Or is that something, a result of training? And Cam, I mean, I was thinking he was going to pick one or the other. And then he launches into the story. Well, about five years ago, I had an accident in college and I was at the hospital and they were doing all of these tests. And the tech said to me, are you a deep sea diver or something? Because your lungs are huge. They're the biggest lungs I've ever seen. And the way he wrapped it up was, and that day I learned that I had huge lungs and I've been using them to my advantage ever since. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that was like a perfect way to tie it up at the end. It was such a ridiculous story, but there was, I, I posted that on Twitter and the mm -hmm. responses were hilarious. You know, just, I've, I've got big lungs ladies. It just was, it was really funny. And Cam is so earnest and genuine and fun. And I just thought that was a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that one. That was fantastic. Um, Blair, thanks so much uh, for joining me on Matchpoint Canada, sharing us your experiences over the last couple of weeks in tennis paradise um, for all our fans. You could follow her on Twitter at Blair Henley. And uh, what, what's your next stop, I guess, in terms of tennis coverage? I am going to be in Houston this year uh, doing the on-court interviews. So um, luckily, well, Luckily for me, hopefully luckily for people who are watching, who knows, but uh, they do take the post-match interviews for the world feeds uh, for the ATP 250s. So if you're watching around the world, that that's my voice that you hear. You probably won't see me, <laughs> but you'll hear my voice. I'm excited to be in Houston as we kick off clay season. Awesome. Well, I uh, can't wait to follow that. And uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks, Ben. There you have it. My interview with guest Blair Henley. Remember, you can find her on Twitter at Blair Henley. And I'll have to be honest, my favorite story that she shared was Layla Annie Fernandez gearing up uh, in tiebreak tens uh, for this target practice where she had to hit a ball, you know, into this specific bag and Blair seeing her um, pep talk herself uh, ahead of this little, you know, fun, fun event where there's no stakes. It's just an exhibition. And she's that focused, that determined that into it. And I thought that was such a, a telling story, just sort of into the personality of Layla and kind of the, the Layla that we've known over the past few years and probably explaining why she is where she is right now in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's no switch for her. It's like always on, always in that mode. Mm -hmm. And yet I found it so funny a couple of weeks ago when we had her on the podcast, how she was talking about how she's the fun, loving, easygoing one. And it's her sister, Bianca, who's actually the one that's so focused. So yeah. I think that's a trait that maybe the Fernandez sisters definitely share. Um, but uh, yeah, Blair, with those great insights, I mean, we could talk to her for for hours on end. I wish we could have her on more often. We'll definitely have to make sure there's a second appearance on Matchpoint Canada for her in 2022. Um, and I just, you know, I was bummed missing out because she's one of my favorites to chat with as well. Uh, but I enjoyed listening to the two of you and boy, just so much laughter and so much enthusiasm for the sport. There is someone that uh, completely, fully and completely loves what she does out there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it shows certainly through her work. I mean, her and I, uh, of course, touched on the men's and the women's side. And just continuing on the women's side, we talked about Iga Sviantek, uh being 
to me, without question, the best player of 2022 outside of Ash Barty and what she accomplished at the Australian Open. I mean, this is just an exceptional run she's on. She wins the title in Qatar just three weeks ago, and and now she's uh, the champion at the BNP Paribas Open, winning Indian Wells' 11-match win streak and only 20 years old. Quite a resume at this age. Five WTA titles, a French Open crown, and three WTA 1000s. And one thing that's telling, too, is she always seems to win the finals in convincing fashion and did so against uh, Maria Sakkari 6-4-6-1. So, boy, is she on such a good run. And you think after Miami, clay court season right around the corner, how well she plays on that surface. She feels like she could be a, a major threat to do damage really through the next few months um, into Wimbledon. Yeah, she's won a big clay court tournament at some point, hasn't she? <laughs> something, something. Yeah, yeah. And now she, here she is uh, just over, what, halfway to um, matching Nadal's uh, winning streak in, in 2022 here. And, and her and Rafa have a very nice sort of rapport with one another as well. And uh, she just seems to be getting stronger and stronger and beating everyone right now. Like, it doesn't matter if it's veterans like Angie Kerber mm-hmm. or younger players or players in between. I mean, everyone seems susceptible right now to uh, to fall when they face her. And uh, what I liked is how she got stronger as the tournament went on. Like, her first three matches all went the distance, best of three. Uh, and then she took it up a notch from there, from the quarterfinals onwards, marching through in straight sets. And you look at her losses this year. There was one early in the year to Ash Barty. And, and boy, it would be great to see them play each other again. Mm-hmm. But that's going to have to wait as, as Barty's not going to the, uh, the Sunshine Double. But her losses more recently, Ostapenko and Collins, uh, players with big firepowers. So... Uh, I suppose if there's anyone she's susceptible to, would you say those are the types of players right now that might have the best chance? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good point you make. Uh, just potentially susceptible to someone who can absolutely crush you off the court. And that was really what Ostapenko was doing at that time, right? Uh, when she did beat Sviantec, she was on this unbelievable run. I think she had a win over Muguruza where she had something like over 45 winners, just ridiculous power from the back of the court. And for those who remember Danielle Collins and her run to the finals of the Australian Open, if you watch that match where she beat Iga and Look, Iga had an incredible Australian Open, too. We, we shouldn't even gloss over that. She was in the semifinals of that tournament. So she played great there, too. She was a match away from the finals. And I felt like Danielle Collins just kind of took the racket out of her hand. And a bit unusual, really, because uh, now Collins, Barty, are two finalists from the Australian Open. We essentially haven't seen them play since then. Uh, Collins traveled, I believe, to one other tournament post-Australian Open in Dubai and then got hurt mid-match against Vondrasova and hasn't been back. She is scheduled to play Miami, so it'll be nice to have, have her back. But uh, curious how that happens. But for yeah, for me, Iga uh, has been second best player on the tour in 2022. And rightfully so, she moves up to world number two with this result at Indian Wells. And, and one player who's been on the losing end now in two straight tournaments is uh, Maria Sakkari, who's been playing playing fantastic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Sakkari's beaten Sviantec in some big events in the past, but I, I'm sensing a real growing confidence in Maria Sakkari and, and just the self-belief in her own abilities over the past year. She was kind of in that, you know, top 20, but not seeming to push into that upper echelon for quite some time. And, and now it seems like she's there and and there to stay, I would say, given how consistent she's been through 2021 and, and now 2022 as well. And I think back to her U.S. Open last year um, where she lost to Emma Raducanu in the semifinals. What a golden opportunity that was for her because the, the winner to, to, to face them would, would have been Leilani Fernandez, of course. And Zachary would have been the favorite in, in both of those matches. I thought mm-hmm. she had such a, a great opportunity to get her first slam. But I, I think she's going to be contending uh, throughout this year at the majors. And uh, she should hold her head up high despite losing in back-to-back tournaments to Iga. Yeah, and and she actually got very emotional after that semifinal win. It was a breakthrough for her to just reach a final of Indian Wells. She had been 0-4 prior in semifinals at WTA 1000. So uh, to me, I know she's one of the older players in the sense that she's not early 20s. I believe she's you know, 20, 26 and a half. She's not an old player at all. She's not, I, I don't know that we should attach the word veteran to her, but she's been around for a, a bit of time. But the fact that she's positioning herself deep in tournaments, seemingly week after week, you get into semifinals. Now you're getting into finals. 
you get the sense, is it a matter of time that she wins one of these big titles? And you mentioned the U.S. Open. She was right there. French Open as well. Made the semifinals there. Lost to Barbara Krejcikova in a wild match. Um, and Krejcikova went on to win the title. So she's going to keep giving herself chances with the quality of tennis uh, that she's playing. And of course, she ended Paula Bedosa's title defense, which I thought honestly went pretty well, backing up the title last year to make the quarterfinals. She played great tennis. I'll segue that into the fact that Leila Annie Fernandez uh, got to the round of 16 before losing to Paula Bedosa. And for me, a positive tournament, I would say, for the Canadian. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, she was just coming off the tournament win in um, in Monterey, uh, where she's done so well, clearly, the past two years as back-to-back champion. And then stepping into a tournament with, you know, and, and not a critique of, of Monterey, but obviously a deeper field of players in Indian Wells. And so going down to a player like Paula Bedosa, 4-4, four and four, um, I, I think is is very respect uh, respectable. And Layla played well. And um, and honestly, you know, having a good run in the doubles also, to me, I put mm-hmm. stock in that. That's going to give her some some confidence too and work on the net play a little bit. And kind of neat to uh, see her play, partnered up with uh, Elise Cornet and... And what I'm seeing from Layla is, and she said to us in the past, it was a little bit tougher to get like practice partners and she felt timid asking people to play doubles with her, you know, in the past. And I think since this U.S. Open run, people are probably clamoring to partner up with her. I, I don't see any issues with her finding someone to play doubles with or to practice with, uh, not just because of what she's proven on the court in terms of her tennis capabilities, but also the fact she's one of the nicest uh, women off the court as well. And uh, I can't see anyone having beef with Layla Annie Fernandez. She just carries herself with just such a respect for all of her opponents. And uh, and that comes back to her, I think, as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Blair and I touched on that, how uh, just her ability to feed off the crowd, just gaining and giving the energy back in these matches. She is already such a star and a fan favorite wherever she goes. You notice that these North American t- tournaments, um, the crowds are filling up to watch Leila Annie Fernandez. You're thinking that second round match she plays against American Shelby Rogers. And I know, you know, we weren't there in person, but I got the sense from watching on TV that, I think the crowd is more leaning Layla. They want to see Fernandez win this match. And that was, for me, the best match she played at the tournament. 6-1-3-6-6-3. Shelby Rogers played great. And I just felt like Fernandez took it into another gear in the third set when she had to, raised her level, and and got the victory. So that was really impressive. And uh, also, round of 16, very hyped crowd, I think, for both sides. We've seen Bedosa as a, a crowd favorite as well, along with Layla. Leila Annie Fernandez's transformation into a crowd favorite and to have so much support worldwide is really something that's blown me away. But I suppose it's sort of like the cross-cultural appeal that she has, um, you know, with all the different roots, her mom and her dad having different backgrounds, the Canadian aspect to, to her as well, where, where she's, uh, you know, born and raised. It's just, um, I think a lot of people can relate to her. And uh, I mean, I've told you a few weeks ago, I stumbled across a Facebook page, fan page of Leila Annie Fernandez. And I was expecting like, I don't know, like, a few thousand followers. There are 33,000 people following That's that big. page. And uh, I'm not going to lie. I put all of our podcast stuff about Layla Annie in there too now because they just eat it up. And all of a sudden I see a little bit of a jump in our listens. But yeah. I think you and me can openly admit as well that of all the, the guests and, and players, uh, ATP or WTA on the podcast, through our three years here as the official podcast of Tennis Canada, Matchpoint Canada, the highest episodes uh, in terms of downloads and listens are consistently the ones that Leila Annie Fernandez is headlining. Yep. Yep. That's uh, absolutely the truth. Uh, Whether it was when she first made that final, even in Mexico and we had an episode, everybody was clamoring to hear that. That was, you know, even before she made this spectacular run at the U S open. So already she was uh, gaining in that fandom, that, that momentum. And of course uh, the, the run to the U S open final just catapulted that even further. Um, As you mentioned, just in doubles quickly, Gabby Dabrowski as well. She was partnered with Juliana Olmos positive tournament for them definitely winning three matches getting to the semifinals uh before lo- losing to the the seven seeds asia mohammed and Ana shibahara so good tournament there for gabby getting back on track we'll touch just a little bit on the atp side and blair and i talked about carlos alcarez for me outside of taylor fritz winning this tournament which is of course the headline stealer i think carlos alcarez was maybe the most exciting player of this tournament I mean, he scared the crap out of me when he beat, excuse me, when he beat Roberto Bautista Agu, 6-2-6-love. <laughs> uh, and I, I'll admit I didn't watch the match, but seeing a scoreline like that against a, a guy that's been around for a while but is still such a, a presence in the top 
you know, of the men's game, top 20 of the men's game uh, in RBA was just a total shocker. Um, uh, the, the fact that he did that so easily. And then, you know, taking out Mofis, who was starting to look like he was rounding into form, taking out uh, Cam Norrie, the defending champion. And uh, I, I wasn't surprised one bit that it took Rafa, you know, every little bit there to go uh, three sets against Alcaraz in the semifinal. I kind of thought, you know, Rafa m- must be getting tired at some point, the strain on his body and just winning match after match after match to start the season. I kind of figured maybe Alcaraz being a little bit younger and coming in with so much mojo was going to take him down. Um, and that didn't, and that didn't happen, obviously credit to Rafa and the great champion he is. And, and, and what a year he's, you know, we'll talk about him momentarily, I suppose, but to me, Alcaraz is scary. Good. The next big thing in men's tennis and uh, boy, how high do we think he could finish 2022 the way he's going already? Oh my goodness. I mean, he's, he's soaring it, it for me. It, it like took a monumental effort from Nadal just to stop his winning streak. Cause he had won the Rio open prior and uh, he's set to jump uh, what he's jumped seven spots now to number 16. Like realistically, is anybody keeping him out of the top 10 by the end of the year? I don't see it. I mean, he's playing better ten- like some names ahead of them. For example, that he's certainly playing better tennis than uh, Hubert Hurkacz. He's been much stronger than him this year. Schwartzman, we have Sinner, I feel like has plateaued a little bit. He hasn't done as much this year. Cam Norrie, he's moving up two spots to number 10. So credit to him. He's uh, just crapped. Uh, <laughs> pardon me. Whoa, whoa, just, uh, yeah, no, I love Cam <laughs> Norrie. Just cracked the top 10. So good for him. And Taylor Fritz moving up as well. He's inside the top 15. So uh, great players in front of him, but I feel like he's such a dominant presence and we know how great he can be on clay. So we're going to have a series of major, major events upcoming on clay. A lot of opportunity for him to pick up serious points. I, I don't see anybody stopping him from the top 10. I wouldn't be surprised if he qualifies for the ATP finals by the end of the year, to be honest. I was just going to say, I'll tell you one thing. There's no way he's playing next gen ATP finals uh, this year. Like (laughs) he did a year ago. He's he's 18 years old, but he's done with that. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt uh, about that. So great tournament for him. Um, Surprise early exit, of course, from Dino Medvedev. Great match from Gal Mofis to beat him. That's the second time he's beaten a world number one. Last time was in 2009 when he beat Nadal. Uh, Taylor Fritz, the champion, and he halts Rafa Nadal's 20 match win streak. Um, but someone made a very good point for Nadal fans. I think if you, uh, fast would fast forward to March 21st and someone would tell you Nadal is 20 and one with three titles and is the Australian open champion. I think you're going to sign up for that. Uh, maybe it was just a matter of time. And I certainly think he was a bit physically hindered in the final Taylor Fritz also was dealing with an ankle injury. He said, uh, his team wanted him to even pull out. They didn't think he could play the match. Somehow he got it prepped. He said he didn't really feel it during and, and played a phenomenal match, beats Rublev in the semis, and finally uh, the guy to stop Rafa. Yeah, I heard from uh, Randy Walker, who's heavily involved in the USTA, and uh, oddly enough, one of the people that helped launch my tennis media career uh, a few uh, years ago. Uh, he said that Jim Courier and Tommy Haas were talking to each other about potentially playing like a a champions like seniors exhibition match to replace the final if Fritz had pulled out. So there was definitely something to that. And uh, my goodness, talk about the best decision ever. I, I can't repeat what Fritz said in the moments after he won the match, of course, but uh, you could tell he was in total shock. And, you know, I was trying to think what, what is it about Taylor Fritz that's uh, maybe taken a little longer than we thought to click or what is it that has him rounding into form now? And, I have no idea, but just one of the things that crossed my mind is, uh, you know, he became a dad at a pretty young age, became a parent Mm -hmm. at a young age. And I know when I first became a parent, um, there was nothing I was doing in my professional career that was really clicking as well as it probably could, uh, because all my focus was taken up on, on being a parent for the first time. And I just wonder if having that kind of responsibility when he was a little bit younger in his career, if that was something that just prevented him and, and, you know, not for, for bad reasons, but obviously you're trying to do your, your, your due diligence as a parent. I wonder if that was just something that sort of took a little bit of the edge away from him and a little bit of the focus away from him. And now as his child is a little bit older and he's kind of probably got the hang of it, if it's allowing him to dedicate to the tennis a little bit more and, and see these kind of uh, obvious, uh, you know, huge strides he's making. Yeah. And uh, a difference too. just finally, I think winning a few tight, tight matches where 
things had not gone his way in the past. I recall him uh, having a bit of a third round curse at majors, had not been able to get over that barrier and get into the round of 16, make the second week of slams a major goal of his. And he finally achieved that at the Australian Open at the front end of this year, had a great five set win actually over Roberto Bautista Gut in the third round. We should remember he pushed Stefano Tsitsipas to the brink in their fourth round match. Uh, Tsitsipas came through in that one in five sets. So I think that speaks to the level of tennis he's playing right now and a huge upset win over Rublev leading into the win over Rafa. And look, even Rafa Nadal at 80%, 60%, whatever he was in that final, uh, obviously hurting a bit, he's still such a tough out and he's still going to compete his tail off that you you have to find a way to beat him. He's, he's not going to give you anything for free. So I'd say, you know, full credit goes to Taylor Fritz for this victory. It's, it's well-deserved. And for Rafa, you know, it's kind of scary that the clay season hasn't even got here and the guy is, is beating just about everybody. Um, you know, I think realistically Rafa is going to have a great shot at finishing the year at number one. And, um, you know, not that that's a total shocker, but uh, probably a few people we would have pegged ahead of him um, last year in terms mm-hmm. of being, um, you know, the Djokovic, Medvedevs, uh, you know, those guys. Uh, wouldn't that be something if Rafa could? And I'm putting maybe a bit too much pressure on him because he's got to stay healthy, of course. And you just never know with the foot. But, boy, with Clay coming around the corner, he's got to be feeling just as good as he's probably ever felt in, in, in many, many years heading into the, uh, the red dirt season here. Yeah, and uh, we will have Novak Djokovic back uh, for the red dirt season. Also, just a tidbit of news quickly that uh, I read that Stan Favrinka is taking a wild card to play, I think, Marbella next week. So can't wait to see Stan Favrinka back in action. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're on Instagram, Matchpoint Canada, also on YouTube and Facebook. Just quickly on the Canadians, I was very surprised to see Felix Ojeleasim out of this tournament man after his first match Bodic van der Zonskulp, very strong top 50 presence uh like a big guy but he moves almost deceptively well he has good reach and balance and uh Felix goes down in three sets and for me this was basically his first sort of letdown match of 2022 really uh yeah and maybe it's the fact that the uh player that beat him from Netherlands uh, just had a heavy hand in defeating Canada in the Davis Cup, and I uh, just had that mojo going up against the red and white against the Maple Leaf. Um, I don't know, it made me think, like, my goodness, would Felix and Dennis have made a difference in Davis Cup if uh, Netherlands uh, seems to have, sort of have our number right now? But, uh, you know, Felix has had such a strong start to the year, such a consistent start to the year. We've been talking about it week in and week out that he's just shown a real other level that he's attained and able to achieve consistently. And, uh, you know, there's very few players that do that. Um, you know, for the first three months of the calendar season. So uh, probably due for a little bit of a letdown there at some point. Uh, More more troubling to me, I guess, is the inconsistencies with Denis uh, Shapovalov right now, that we've seen him lose some matches that, uh, and Alpelka obviously is a terrific player and those two have have had their battles before. But uh, I I just feel like it it hasn't been uh, what we've hoped from Denis after the strong start at the ATP Cup and the Aussie Open. Yeah, he's certainly slipped since the Australian Open, probably even by his standards. I think he'd tell you he's maybe not the happiest with his tennis. Um, Mentally getting very frustrated on the court, which is not something we love to see, though we know he's certainly a more emotional kind of up and down player as opposed to Felix, who seems like the more even keeled presence of the two. But I, I felt like Shapovalov just kind of lost control of this match. And as you mentioned, Opelka's a great player, uh, very tough to beat one of the best serves on tour, certainly top three on tour in terms of serving, but the opportunity I think was there early third set for maybe Dennis to, to get a hold of this match and just played a, a really poor service game. And suddenly you're up against someone who serves that way and you just can't find your way back in it. And that's what happened to Dennis. One thing that I will mention that's positive, I think for both of them is that historically they both seem to play a lot better tennis in Miami than Indian Wells. Felix has struggled at Indian Wells in the past for whatever reason, the best he's done is third round. Both of these guys have been to the semifinals of Miami. So whether something to do with, you know, the way the ball plays off the court, the surface is slightly different speed uh, at this, at this level, those little details tend to matter. So 
I, I think yeah, I feel like can... I feel like the conditions between the two are quite different. I feel like, you know, even Blair Henley was mentioning it, that the, mm-hmm. the conditions in Indian Wells, while Indian Wells is such an exciting tournament for fans and the atmosphere, it's maybe not shared by many of the players in terms of how the courts play. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, hopefully Miami is a rebound in a tournament they've both played well at in the past. And, you know, I was just filling in my bracket for the Tennis Canada Bracket Challenge. And if you haven't done that yet, get in on it. It's a lot of fun even when you get whooped like I did last week with some of my bold predictions that didn't come through. Um, but uh, what I'm trying to say here is, uh, as I was making my predictions, I did have Dennis and Felix going further than I, I had them uh, this past week in Indian Wells. Yeah, uh, and and that's understandable. I probably took Felix way too far in my Indian Wells bracket, but uh, I might take him far this time in Miami. I feel like he's going to turn a corner pretty quickly. Hopefully, Dennis uh, can do the same. I guess some other news and notes we want to get to before we wrap. Yeah, so uh, let's stick with the men for just a second. And uh, we did mention that Netherlands beat Canada in Davis Cup, and and we figured, well, that was going to be it for Canada having any shot at the Davis Cup finals this year for the first time in the three years since the event was reformatted. But in fact, Canada has got a wild card into the Davis Cup finals round robin in September, and uh, they will hopefully have their full complement September, you know, after the U.S. Open before some of the bigger indoor tournaments get going. So hopefully we can get Dennis and Felix there, Vashik for the doubles as well. And, uh, you know, it, Canada is, is one of the most dangerous countries in the world to me on either the men's or the women's side in international play. We saw them win the ATP Cup this year. So I think they're going to be a legitimate threat. And this could be, uh, you know, just sort of like uh, good fortune, uh, smiling on Canada to get there because we didn't think they were going to have this opportunity. No, I mean, they've, they've certainly been handed a break. I say, take it and run with it. And we, we knew going in against the Netherlands, it was such a shorthanded roster, as you said, that that wasn't really the representation of Canada as a tennis country. And that is no disrespect whatsoever to Braden Schneer, Stephen Diaz, Alexi Galarneau, who are all quality players. They're just not our best players. Uh, so it, it really changes the game and the scenario in Davis Cup when we have our Felixes, Dennis's, Vashik's there. Fingers crossed that Milos Raonic can get healthy and just return in 2022. I won't put the expectation of Davis Cup on his shoulders, but I I just love to see him back on the court at some point this season. Yeah, I purposefully didn't uh, mention his name there, even though it crossed my mind. Just because, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't have any you know super insider knowledge, but I'm not I'm not getting that confident feeling. Uh, I did speak with him about a month and a half ago, and he said just sort of laying low, working on things right now, but uh, keeping a low profile. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get him on Match Point Canada sometime later this this spring or early summer. And hopefully by that point, he's got some some good news to share. But he definitely makes Canada stronger. And on the women's side, we've got a, a roster that's going to be a lot stronger for the Billie Jean King Cup, which is happening in Vancouver at Pacific, Pacific Coliseum. So a big venue there as well. And uh, we were really hoping we get one of our big guns, and we do in singles, and that's Leila Annie Fernandez is committed to playing. She'll be joined by Rebecca Marino, who calls uh, out West uh, home for her. Gabby Dabrowski in doubles, and the squad will be complemented with Francoise Abanda and Carol Zhao as well. So that is a deeper roster than the previous women's tie, and uh, that gives me a pretty confident feeling against Latvia that uh, Canada should be right in this one. 100%. I feel like Canada, with this roster, certainly the favorite. You're bringing our best singles player, of course, and Layla, top 20 presence, and our best doubles player with Gabby Dabrowski there. And Rebecca Marino, honestly, she's taken a different route to start this season playing ITS, but she was playing great tennis. I I know that's one level below um, the the main WTA tour events, but three finals at ITFs, winning one of those titles, and currently working her way through Miami Open qualifying uh, and did win her first match, by the way, uh, at this time of recording. So good signs for Rebecca in the tennis she's playing. Carol Zhao as well, sort of grinding on on the ITF circuit. We haven't seen that much of Francoise Abanda, but she seems to play well when she's representing Canada. She's had some big, uh, big wins in Billie Jean King Cup in the past. So I love the roster we're sending. We're only missing Bianca Andreescu. And I mean, Bianca hasn't yet played in 2022. Fingers crossed. She'll be back soon. Well, we've got some great uh, videos and images of Bianca back on court. And I did Mm -hmm. notice it looked like a green clay court, like a hard true court she was practicing on. So I wonder if perhaps that means uh, that she's getting ready for maybe a return during the clay court season. Um, So that would be great to see, of course. One other note for that Fed Cup tie, sorry, Billie Jean King Cup tie. 
Um, and this is for Canadian tennis fans who go kind of uh, back a few decades. But uh, Helen Kelsey, who used to be a top 20 player on the WTA back in the 1980s, has been named special ambassador for Team Canada for this tie. And uh, Helen Kelsey, I remember, I've got some memories when I was a kid of watching her play. She was fantastic for Canada. She repped us at the 88 Olympics, 17 Fed Cup ties, and oh. was named Canadian Female Player of the Year on four occasions. Uh, her career was sadly halted at the young age of 26 after the discovery of a brain tumor. Uh, but she was able to overcome that challenge and uh, continues to coach tennis, be heavily involved in tennis. And it'll be great to see her there too for, uh, for Team Canada. Yeah, that, that'll certainly be a, a well-deserved honor as special ambassador for, for Helen. Great news. Uh, I will mention here, we, we started our giveaway a couple of weeks ago, and I understand maybe writing reviews is a bit of a, a pain because we didn't get very many, but Carolina Pliskova, we do have a signed tennis ball from when she was at the National Bank Open. We chatted with her then. She's back on the tour, uh, and she will be playing the Miami Open. Had an early loss at Indian Wells, but she'll be trying to bounce back, and I w- would like to say we will again have that signed ball for a lucky listener. So for a chance to enter... Are we doing a retweet of the episode? Yeah, retweet. Let's retweet this week's episode uh, for a chance to um, enter the draw, and we'd love to send that off to you. And uh, my little segue here before we end is uh, we got the signed ball courtesy of one Oliver Wheeler, who has uh, been uh, sort of at the helm of comms for Tennis Canada for the past couple of years and through a really difficult time during the pandemic as well, which had been so difficult on Tennis Canada. At times, I feel like he was kind of steering the, the comms ship all by himself. And uh, Oliver just told us this week that uh, he is moving on to other uh, endeavors. He's going to be the new comms manager for Rugby Canada. And uh, I think Oliver would uh, not mind me saying that I believe he is a a big rugby fan. So this sounds like it's right in his wheelhouse. And, you know, this is someone we've worked closely with over the last couple of years. And uh, Oliver's from Liverpool. He's got a great accent, a great personality. And we've really had a blast working with him. Oliver, if you're listening, thank you for the support. We wish you all the best. And Look forward to uh, perhaps grabbing a beverage with you at some point in the future to uh, celebrate this uh, this achievement for you. So all the best, and we'll miss you here. Um, yeah, good luck. Yeah, all the best, and uh, congratulations on on the new gig with Rugby Canada. Certainly exciting. We'll be back with more podcasts for Tennis Canada. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada, guys. We'll talk to you next time.